amen. Gosh, it's good to be with you today. Um, Next week, uh, we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to start our series in the book of Acts. So you can read ahead, chapter one, I mean, not right now, but at some point this week, read ahead. We'll dive into that next week. As Roland mentioned, these last, uh, or the last week and this week, we've been talking about values and specifically kind of what motivates and drives us. Remember, we said this last week, what a person values will determine the trajectory of their life almost more than anything else. And that's also true with churches. More than a vision statement, sometimes even more than doctrine, what we value as a church will determine what God does with us. Uh, It'll determine what it feels like to be a part of us. And so we're looking at four things that our pastors, elders, and key staff have all agreed. Historically, these four things have been major values of our church, and we want them to continue to be. So we're talking about them. Hopefully, you will like them as much as we do and feel like God is really in these things because we really believe he is. We looked at two last week that were a little bit more theological in nature. First, Jesus and just Jesus is the center of everything we do. Faith in him, that is the core. That is number one in the priority list and always will be. And then the second thing is this. We exist to join God's kingdom work in the world. We feel like that is the grand purpose of our spiritual lives in Christ, okay? This week I want to look at two that are a little bit more relational in nature. Um, And no suspense. I'll just hit you with them right here and we'll talk about them uh, for the rest of the morning. So here's the first of the two that I want to look at. First, everyone is welcome at Pulpit Rock. Again, sounds like the sort of thing a church should say, uh, but I want you to notice there is no qualifiers on that. Everyone is welcome at Pulpit Rock, no matter who you are, no matter what you're struggling with, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how you think about God, you are welcome here, and our goal is to extend God's welcome to you. Second one, we value multiple voices at Pulpit Rock. Meaning, we do not believe that the primary purpose of church is to download truth to the people. We don't believe it should be a monologue. We actually think it is a conversation between God's people and God. And so it involves all of us, and we all have to talk. We value multiple voices at Pulpit Rock. I want to get into some scripture and just give you kind of the scriptural foundation for these two values out of the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. But before we get to that, let me hit you with an illustration. Something that's important for all of us to realize as Jesus followers in 2022. There's a fabulous Australian author named John Dixon. Uh, He's a church historian, uh, wrote a book about church history called Bullies and Saints. If you like church history, which everyone said last week after I used that church history illustration, just how much that was delightful to them. So pick up this book. There's lots of those stories in this book. It's really good. Um, But in it, he tells the story of an experiment he did in 2017. He goes to his local music store in Sydney, Australia, and he rents a cello. Uh, And he pays for a two-hour lesson on the cello, having never prior to that moment ever touched the uh, instrument, the cello, right? So uh, he spent the next five days of his life practicing and trying to master what is probably the most famous cello piece of all time. It's Prelude to Cello Suite Number 1 in G Major, of course, by Johann Sebastian Bach. Now, you may not recognize the name, but I bet you recognize the melody of this stunning piece of music. Let's play a little bit of this. Does that sound familiar? Okay, this is being performed 
not by John Dixon, but by Yo-Yo Ma, I'm told a very great cellist. Pretty stunning, right? Pretty timeless, pretty beautiful. All right, let's cut it off. We're going to come back to it in a second. So this author, John Dixon, got a cello, never played before, spends the next five days practicing for hours that piece of music. And then he rents out the famous Sydney Theater and invites a bunch of friends and family to perform what he learned. What do you think happened? It was not very good, right? Some reviews said barely recognizable, <laughs> you know? which is hard to do with such an iconic piece of music. Now, why was it so bad? Well, of course, you cannot master one of the most beautiful pieces of music ever written in five days. Of course, right? Some people spend their entire lives practicing just to unlock the stunning melody of that song. Now, here's the point the author's trying to make. We would be wrong to conclude anything about the composer Johann Sebastian Bach by John Dixon's poor performance of his music, right? We should not blame the composer. Just because you hear a poor performance doesn't diminish the beauty and the transcendence of the original song. It just means the performer's not very good. Doesn't mean the song's bad. Doesn't mean the composer's not very talented. Here's how it connects to us. Jesus wrote the most stunningly beautiful melody the world has ever heard with his life. And sadly, what sometimes happens is the mediocre and amateur performance of his kingdom song by us Christians has convinced some people that the song's not very good and the composer's not very talented. You know, ultimately, though, <laughs> we shouldn't blame him any more than we should blame Johann Sebastian Bach for John Dixon's performance. Using his metaphor, I think it is at times in the last 2,000 years that we as Christians have been musical hacks and played the song of Jesus poorly that has convinced people that it's not a very good song. And I bet if we had to put our heads together and identify the primary way that we've missed notes in this song, I think the primary way has been the way we've sometimes treated people. Is that probably fair to say? There have been some sour notes there. One of the things that fixes that is what we talked about last week. It's not just having good theology, but having theology in the correct order and prioritizing Jesus first and foremost above all other things helps us hit those notes a little bit more accurately. But uh, let me expand this metaphor just a little bit. I think what sometimes happens, I think this is especially happening in our country right now as we speak. Imagine an orchestra of like very accomplished musicians who really know how to play the song, right? But they don't like each other. Uh, they know all the notes and how to play them, but they refuse to play well together. So they're starting at different times and uh, they're uh, playing at different tempos and they're all doing it in their own way. And so it sounds like a muddled mess that doesn't sound like a beautiful transcendent piece of music. I think that's often what we in the church looks, look like to the outside world. And so they've concluded the song is no good, but in fact what is actually happening is we just don't know how to play very well together. Um, these two values, what we're talking about today, they are all about that. 
They're about playing the song well together. What does it look like to blend our individual versions of Jesus' song into an orchestra as the people of God? And how do we play together? When we create communities where everyone is welcome no matter what and no one has to earn belonging, it is freely given. When we create communities where everyone's voice matters because everyone who has faith in Jesus has an equal amount of the Holy Spirit, that's a lot closer to the original song Jesus wrote. And so that's what we're trying to do here at Pulpit Rock. Let me give us uh, some biblical justification for these two values. And there's a lot of them all over scripture. I'm sure you're thinking of some verses in your head. Uh, I think especially though, we should take note of the behavior of Jesus that gives us a lot of information about how we should interact to one, with one another. I think, honestly, you could look at any of the moments, and there's a few of them, where Jesus is accused of eating with tax collectors and sinners. You're familiar with that phrase? People said, you eat with tax collectors and sinners. And he said that. That was an accusation because he welcomed these people that the spiritually mature people of the day thought he shouldn't. And by the fact that he is being criticized, we know it's not like he's sitting at their tables eating with them saying, hey, I have a list of grievances and sins that I want to read to you all about your behavior, right? Like that's not what he was doing. In fact, he wasn't doing that. That's why they were upset. The religious people would say, Jesus, if all you're doing is loving on those people and attending their dinner parties without telling them the truth about their sin, it's as if you're okay with their sin. That was the nature of the criticism. You know, I mean, that is an insanely arrogant thing to say to the only righteous and holy person who ever lived on earth. But from a human perspective, it makes sense. It's like, hey, I can't let anyone maybe think that I'm okay with something they're doing if God's not okay with it. And we think that way. I've heard that even in this church in the last month. I've heard someone say, we can't just welcome everyone to Pulpit Rock because if we do, they'll think we're okay with their sin. We have to stand against their sin, don't we? It's hard to argue with. From a human perspective, it makes perfect sense. Like the only problem with that way of thinking is that the perfectly righteous and holy Jesus never once operated that way. So we have to reconcile that. If we have to let people know that we're not okay with their sin, how come Jesus wasn't constantly doing that? And he wasn't. He had an unqualified welcome for everyone. That's why he was criticized. Because it was unqualified. And people are like, you need to throw in a few qualifications here and there. And Jesus is like, no. So what I want to do today is show you what I think is the reason that he operated that way on earth. Because there was a reason behind it. There was a purpose behind it. He welcomed everyone and made space for every, everyone because of something I think that he believed. Like his theological approach to humanity. And it's as simple as this. God's standard of righteousness is perfect love. Okay, that's what Jesus believed. He taught about that and he was constantly trying to convince us of the significance of that for how we interacted with each other. So turn with Matthew 5, see if you can follow the thread of Jesus' teaching. This, I think it'll revolutionize the, there's a fly, I'm sorry. That's a bad sign. Um, I think this way of thinking will revolutionize the way you see yourself and others if we could hear the amazing melody he's writing. Matthew chapter 5, it's the Sermon on the Mount, 5, 6, and 7 of, chapter, of Matthew. Um, and towards the beginning, he says this, Matthew 5, 17. 
Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And now here is an implication of what he just said. Verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. We have to appreciate what Jesus is saying here. Like what he's saying, and Pharisees, teachers of the law, say what you will about them. Like they made righteousness a sport, and they were excellent at it, right? And what he's saying is, listen, even the best people on the planet, truly, probably for all time, these superstars of human morality, they're not good enough. That is a fascinating statement, and that is deeply subversive. It's subversive because isn't this true? From a human perspective, that's not right. From a human perspective, there is a spectrum of morality, and it matters. You want to be on the good end of that spectrum of morality from a human perspective. Let me illustrate the challenge of this uh, by going to an extreme. Um, I, so I, some of you know I have the privilege in my free time of working with our partner, the Exodus Road. Uh, they fight human trafficking and work with local law enforcement around the world to find victims of sex trafficking, collect evidence that can free them and prosecute the traffickers. Um, so helping with that work, I, you know, I've wound up in, like honestly, some objectively pretty awful places. And I have met men who are actively selling other humans for sex. Like they are complicit in one of the true evils of the world, right? What Jesus is saying is the moral, stars, uh, moral superstars of humanity and human traffickers are on the same level. That's what he's saying. It bothers me. Like I want to say to Jesus, Please do not lump me in with those people. Like, I'm better than them. Like, objectively, I'm better than them. But what makes this revolutionary is Jesus is telling us all, hey, all humans, listen up. You're looking in the wrong direction. When you think about yourself, you're looking at the bad people so that you can feel superior. What you should be doing is looking at God's perfect standard of righteousness so you feel your need for his grace. So you feel your need for a savior. Because you're not even close to that, even though you're a little bit better than those people. Let's use a tired old metaphor. You may have heard this before, but I think what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is he takes meeting God's righteous standard and he turns it into a contest of who can jump over the Grand Canyon, right? Um, I mean, it's, it's pretty far. Uh, we could give it a shot. And like, this is true. I'm not in bad shape. I could jump probably further than some people. Um, it's also probably true, like someone like LeBron James, he could jump a lot further than me. And what Jesus was seeing when he was looking out at us humans is that he's seeing us compete about who got further. And he's like, you guys, would you just observe you all wound up in the same place? 
That's what's relevant here, not who got a little bit further than somebody else. You're all equally, desperately in need of a Savior. And it must have been comical, but also very painful to him that some people who could jump eight feet out were getting mad at him for being around people who could only jump three feet out. And they're like, when are you going to point out that they didn't go the other five feet? And he's saying, well, when are you going to realize that you're all at the bottom of the canyon? Jesus says you're looking at the wrong thing. You're looking at each other feeling superior. You should be looking at the chasm of God's perfect standard, feeling your need for grace. And I think partly one of the reasons Jesus welcomed everyone without qualification was because we all appeared to his perfect eyes equally unrighteous. He didn't see any distinction between pastors and human traffickers when it comes to God's standard. Now, part of what we have to notice, too, about the perfect standard of God's righteousness is it's not just like moral perfection of like, don't do anything wrong, uh, don't do all the bad stuff. It it actually is a a perfect love that is the standard, right? It is perfection that is always rooted and oriented towards the other, and it is the most intense, perfect definition of love you will ever read. Listen to the way he talks about it. This is from verse 21. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Impossible. Impossible. I defy you to try to meet the standard. I mean, imagine living your life and never experiencing anger. Impossible. I can't even drive home. (laughs) Notice that statement, totally unqualified. No qualifications. It's not like, well, but if they're really bad people. No, it's just no, no anger. Verse 27, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, not qualified. And again, impossible. He says, just by looking, you've taken something from her, even if it's just happening inside of you. And then he says, well, let me help you out with that one. Here's a possible solution. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, to clarify, in case we're just thinking he's talking about something else, he's talking about getting out of hell and into heaven, right? That that standard of righteousness. And he says it is so rigorous and so such a perfect standard of love that if having eyes put you in jeopardy of missing it, get rid of your eyes. Huh. This is the point of the sermon, but you have to point out here, uh, notice he does not blame the ladies for this one, as some do. He doesn't say, ladies, watch what you wear. Don't cause men to stumble. In fact, he does the opposite. He puts 100% of the responsibility on what is happening inside of the men, irregardless or regardless of what is happening around them, Right? He says, it doesn't matter what's happening around them. You're 100% responsible for your lustful thoughts. That is the standard. He is not just talking about, hey, try to sin a little bit less, guys. Slow down. Like, that's not how he's talking about this. He is talking about living a life where in every situation you are 100% loving, even on the inside. Where you never take from someone, where you're never selfish, where you always put the other first. That's the standard. And just in case we're like dodging those first two, uh, he hits us with this little gem, verse 43. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. 
I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And just so there's no doubt, verse 48, be perfect. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I mean, this, this, this is the most beautiful and the most exacting standard of love and moral perfection you will ever read anywhere. There's nothing like it in ancient literature, and there has been nothing like it since. Like this idea that we should love everyone always, even on the inside, like even the worst of people, even people who are objectively like out to get you, that righteousness is about even loving them. Uh, I heard someone say it this way. Uh, God's righteousness is not about how well we love Jesus. It's about how well we love Judas, like our Judas. Of course we love Jesus. He died for us. But the righteous standard of God is how do we love those who betray us. That idea, it's uniquely Christian. And it is totally impossible for humans. And so when we ask, how is it that Jesus, perfectly righteous Jesus, had an unqualified welcome for every person and related to them all as if they were worthy of love. We have to see there are two constant truths at work in him that will change everything for us if we can internalize them. The reason he celebrated and welcomed everybody, the reason he loves and celebrates and welcomes human traffickers as much as pastors is because every human totally falls short of God's standard fully. And I know it's insulting, but Jesus looks at us and sees no substantive difference between our sin. We all fall short. And also, and yet every human is created in the image of God and worthy of love. And when Jesus looks at us, he sees the image of his heavenly Father in us, and he cannot help but love the image of God in us. And I know we don't deserve that love, but that's how he sees you. And so here's what I would say if we were going to drag this forward into our context. Jesus' life and teaching points this out. If God's standard is perfect love, we all fall way short. None of us significantly better than others. And if despite that, every single person bears the image of God, then no person should ever have to worry about being welcomed by God's people people who know the grace of Jesus and see the image of the God they love in every person. That's what it means for us. No person should have to worry about that. I wonder if sometimes people worry about that with churches. You know, I think the problem with churches that are judgmental about certain people and certain sins, and it's always certain sins. I'm sure you could make the list uh, in your own head. It's always certain sins. Churches that say, hey, we love you, but we hate your sin. We do, and we just we want to point it out so there's no misunderstanding that you think maybe we're okay with what you're doing. Churches like that aren't taking a stand for God's righteous standard, even though that's what they may say. If they were, they'd be pointing out the sin in their own lives because that's how it works in the scriptures. That's not what they're doing. What we actually do when we withhold the welcome of God from certain people is we are reducing the perfect standard of God to something that is humanly attainable and some people have yet to attain it so they're not welcome here. And until they admit that, until they admit that they're not attaining it and they try a little harder like the rest of us, they're not welcome here. And while that makes 
us feel better about ourselves because we get to take a stand against someone else's sin, which is a whole heck of a lot easier than taking a stand against your own sin, by the way. That's why we all love doing it. But what we actually do in those moments when we, when we withhold God's welcome is we degrade God's perfect standard of righteousness. And we make it this merit-based system where to get welcomed, you have to beat somebody else in the sin game. To get welcomed, you have to be more righteous than someone else to get acceptance. And when we do that, it is this serious. We are dismissing the perfect righteousness that is in Jesus Christ, that is imputed to us upon faith. That is the only reason we have any righteousness. Not because we jumped so far over that Grand Canyon, but because he cleared it, right? We're dismissing and degrading that perfect standard of righteousness. And we're honestly, we're profaning the image of God on earth that is in all people. It's that serious. Let me personalize it to me a little bit. When I look at a human trafficker and think, and I have, I have thought this, I, like I'm confessing this. He doesn't deserve my love. When I've had that thought, believe it or not, that statement is actually an attack on the image of God. It is. That statement is about my arrogant belief that I have attained something that he hasn't that makes me worthy of love where he isn't. But because I know the grace of Jesus for my sins, I'm learning to see the image of God in every person. And so like part of it for me is this journey of learning to love him, uh, learning that he's worthy of my love, and don't get me wrong, I, like I'm going to love him by trying to stop him and get him arrested, but I can do the right thing without disrespecting or degrading him as a human, even though he's an enemy to me. He's an enemy I'm commanded to love. That's what he is. That's the way of Jesus. It's impossible. It's a really hard song to play. And yet, by the grace of God, we are trying to play that song. It is the most radical and beautiful song that has ever been played. Let me correct it, connect it practically to church in two ways. First, if everyone falls short of perfect love, if all people are made in the image of God, then in the community of faith, as we interact with each other, every person should come as they are right? Everyone should be welcomed as they are. We all do the same thing where it's like, hey, let me clean myself up a little bit so I'll get more acceptance from other humans. We all do that. And as church people, we know how toxic and unhealthy that is for our souls. So we're trying to do it a lot less. What we're trying to do here at church is just welcome each other as we are and show up as we are. And we don't just want you to experience that. If you're going to be a part of this church, we want you to extend that welcome to other people. You could help someone else experience the welcome of Jesus by how you welcome them. That's what this community is about. That's what the early church did, by the way. That was their way of being together. Uh, listen to this. One of the church fathers, Paul, said this about himself. He said, though I am free and belong to no one, listen to this, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. To those not having the law, I became like, the, like one not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessing. 
He's saying, the reason that I'm welcoming everyone is because I know Jesus, so I'm the one who's going to adjust because he adjusted for me. And I'm going to adjust so that other people, in whatever way they come, are feeling comfortable enough to meet Jesus, like I did, and didn't deserve, right? And this is not just Paul saying, hey, I don't want to offend anyone by saying the wrong thing. That's not what, read Paul. He didn't worry about that very much. This is Paul saying, literally, it is the spirit of Jesus who was up in heaven, nothing like us, and said, you know what? I'm going to set that aside and become like them so that they could be saved. And Paul's saying, hey, we get to have that spirit with one another. And what it means is we adjust, we accommodate to one another so that no one is on the outside and everyone gets a chance to encounter the love of Jesus. That's how it works. Here's a second way we would apply this. If God's standard is perfect love and we've all fallen short, but we're still loved, created in the image of God, uh, then I think this is true. In God's eyes, human spiritual hierarchy is a lot less important than we make it. That can be the formal hierarchies that we set up. That could just be the hierarchy we keep in our mind about which sins are really bad and which sins aren't. In Jesus' eyes, he saw us as a lot more equal than we'd ever see ourselves. That's why, incidentally, when it, it comes to the time in the Bible where the church is being launched in the book of Acts, we're going to be there in just a few weeks, in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends and flattens all human hierarchy by indwelling everyone who has faith in Jesus. One of the disciples, Peter, is watching this and he's like, I knew that was coming. He says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And so what's happening in that moment is suddenly God has made himself accessible to everyone. Like God has left the building and indwelt anyone who has faith. doesn't matter what we've done, who we are, what we're struggling with, what we believe. Uh, if we believe in Jesus, if we believe in the sinner, then God is equally in everyone who has faith in Jesus. It's like, like totally equal. And because of that, we all can hear from God. We all should hear from God. That's why I'm never going to be the only one who preaches here. That's why we got to have multiple voices in the pulpit. That's why we got to learn in groups. We're launching a whole bunch of groups. The reason we do that is not just so you'll have friends. We want you to have friends, but it's because we've got to listen to the Holy Spirit together. We even do this with kids. And it's like, what do kids know about God? Um, well, I don't know, but they have as much Holy Spirit as I have. So we get them to interact. We get them to discuss. In the counsel of multiple humble voices, we can hear more clearly from God, but we have to value each other and we have to engage with humility. In the New Testament, some things shift. In the process of hearing from God, it becomes this collaborative, interactive group exercise. And that's what we feel like church is called to be. We bypass that sometimes, honestly, because I'm sure you've experienced this. It is just maddeningly inefficient. Like when I'm like, hey, I think God's saying this. And you're like, no, he's not. He's saying this. And then we're like, oh, now I got to work through that. And it's like, man, I, who needs that? Let's just, ha let's just have that guy tell us what God says. Like that's always the challenge of this. 
But it, it seems biblically that this really is what God wants, is to interact together with him where the Holy Spirit is present so that we could collectively hear from him and work through those moments when we don't see eye to eye. He seems to think we need each other. I think he may just be right. And that's where I want to end today. We need each other. And I don't know, I mean, we're not for everyone, but I hope that as you hear these values that God's put in our hearts, there's something in that resonates with you and you say, hey, I want to be there. I want to be with these people. This is what it is. This is what we're trying to do. This beautiful song Jesus wrote with his life, his life, his mission, his teaching, what he accomplished is the most beautiful, perfect, sublime work in all of human history. It's pretty good. Undoubtedly, we are musical hacks compared to the virtuoso of kingdom love that was Jesus Christ, right? We probably sound like we've only put in a couple days of practice sometimes. But what we're trying to do as a church is just hit a few good notes of that incredible song, The Greatest Melody Ever Written. For us, there's four things that we know are the good notes. Jesus and only Jesus is the center. We're joining his kingdom work in the world. We're welcoming all people. And we're valuing multiple voices. And we hope this, given enough time and enough practice that we just might experience and others just might recognize in us the epic melody that was Jesus Christ. We'd love to have you play his song with us. Thank you.